Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
All right, welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is Sunday, the 23rd of June. It's good to be back on the air. We were off last week for Father's Day, and I hope all the fathers had a great one. And we got a cool show for everybody tonight. Angelo Bria from Aaron's Rod and Mad Wagon, as well as Mark Nestia from Wisdom. We'll be talking to Angelo first in about 25 minutes. We're going to keep the music going between now and then. Kick things off with a little TT quick. One in New Jersey's finest would go for the throat. I love that EP. If I have to make a, a top 10 album list, that would definitely be one of them and on there. All right, we're going to get to some brand new music from Sacrilege right now. They just put out their latest record. They've done it again, The Court of the Insane. It's out on Pure Steel Records. What an amazing job these guys have done since coming back. I believe this is their third record since reuniting or putting the band back together. And each album keeps getting better and better. Here's Celestial City.
All right, that's Killer out of Belgium. There were two killers around. There's probably more, but there were two that were more well-known. It was the killer from Belgium, this band we just played, and there was one from Switzerland, I believe, going out around the same time in the early 80s. Uh, this killer broke up, I want to say it was around 87, 88, and then uh, they got back together in 2009. Shorty is the only original member left in the band. They were always considered like a poor man's three-piece version of Motorhead back in the day. Uh, but that Ready for Hell record, uh, it came out almost 40 years ago. It's hard to imagine that, you know. I, <laughs> I remember buying it when it came out, so I, I really feel old when I hear stuff like that. All right, my brother from another mother and my good friend and our former co-host, Tommy, he's in the hospital right now. He's in pretty bad shape. Uh, so I want to wish him well. I'm going to go see him after the show is over. But in the words of the cast of Galaxy Quest, never give up, never surrender. <laughs>
Savage Grace, Fight for Your Life with Dr. Chris Hoke on <laughs> guitar. I never know. If, I mean, they say that that story is true, that he was practicing medicine. He's not a doctor, never was a doctor, and that he was practicing medicine and got caught. I haven't heard or seen anything of him in probably over a decade. I don't know what he's up to or what he's doing or if that story is even true, but it is a funny story, and it was going around for a long time, so it just might be. But uh, I love that first EP with uh, John Burke on vocals. I mean, Master of the Skies, the second record wasn't bad. I think Mike Smith was a singer in the band at that point. You know, Savage Grits can never maintain, you know, a steady lineup, and especially in the vocal department. But to me, John Burke was the voice of that band and a great singer at that. I have to try to find him and maybe get him on the show one day. We've had most of the ex-members of Savage Grace on here, so maybe that's something to look forward to doing. All right, let's play some Aaron's Rod. After the song, I'll get Angelo on the line, and we'll start that interview. His heart is a stone.
I tell you, that stuff sounds just as good today as when I bought that record in Zigzag Records back in Brooklyn in the 80s. All right, let's get Angela on the line. Bear with me here a second while we dial him up, and we'll get this interview going in a minute. Hello. Angelo, this is Mike. You're on the air. How are you? How you doing, Mike? What's going on? I'm doing good. I'm talking to you on a Sunday afternoon. I know it's a little early for you out on the West Coast, but uh, hey, how big can life be? Oh, and hey, it's okay with me, and it's 3.30, so this is normally the time I wake up and have my coffee. So, <laughs> uh, The life of a rock star, I tell you. I'm, I'm telling you, man, I'm getting too old for this shit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Hey, you know, listen, I, I've been dying to get you on the show. I finally found you. And, you know, when we booked this interview, I didn't realize just how much was going on in the Aaron's Rock camp. Besides Medwagon, which is, you know, your newest thing that you've been doing, I didn't realize that, you know, right. there's a new record coming out, a reun- another reunion, re-releases. Shit, you, you know, you're busy. It's 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 all ha- you know how things go. There are moments in life when nothing's going on in your life, and then there's and then and then everything happens at the same time. So, yeah, uh, it's it's been kind of a tornado of activity lately. Um, yeah, Aaron's Rod. We've been trying to work on this new uh, record for a while now, but you know we all live all over the country now. You know Brian Spalding, the guitar player, lives in San Francisco. The other guys live in Hawaii still, and now and I'm living in Portland, Oregon, and um, so and we've all busy with our other projects. We've been trying to get this thing going, but it just somehow it all kind of the, all the planets lined up, and now I'm starting to track all my vocals here in Portland, and I'm sending it off to Gerard Gonzalez, our drummer, who who incidentally ru- runs and operates Tin Idol Productions who's handling all of the production work for the Aaron's Rod record. So that just started to happen now of, of all the times. And, you know, we're kind of stoked about it and, you know, we're all excited. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it all happens at the same time. Yeah. 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 I get that. It's great. Uh, you know, you think, you think about the first record, you know, the, you know, all of you together back then living in Hawaii in the same room, together recording music, you know, ironing everything out. Now, like I said, everybody's all over the place, but you have the technology today that lets you do, you know, what you're doing and how you do it. I mean, how do you feel about it now compared to, like, you know, going into the studio the first time everybody was together? Is there something missing well, that you to get used to and adapt it? Well, you know, I'm old school. I'm an old school guy. I like I like everybody in the room. I miss those days. We were in the room, sweating, working out, passing out songs. And I realize now, you know, we're living in a new world now where everybody's got a laptop and a computer and you can record a record, you know. Back, back in my day, you actually had to have a band sit in a room and play the songs and record the songs like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a tech guy. I'm, you know, so I'm, I'm amazed at the technology nowadays, how, how we can make things happen. Um, the thing about it is, it, you know, I, I, the songs are great. Brian Spaulding is solid as a rock. This guy writes songs. He, everything that comes off of his fingers, everything that comes out of his guitar is gold in my book. And it, it's like riding a bike for me. You know what I mean? It's like riding a bike where uh, it's, it feels natural to me. 
You know, it's kind of weird just doing the vocal tracks and not having the guys in the room. But at the end of the day, it sounds amazing. And so, you know, I, I got to go with that. You know, I got to leave it up to the producers and, and those guys to figure it out. And um, it sounds great, though. Here's the thing, though. Because now we're doing this, oh, everybody wants to play now. Okay, we got to do a show, right? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, of course, we got to do a show. So we got a reunion concert coming up on December 28th in Honolulu. Um, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a set. We're going to play a set. We got Ed Dysars on bass, our old bass player. Uh, we have Toby Julian on uh, guitar. Toby Julian was our guitar player when we were in Los Angeles, when Aaron's Rod moved to LA from Hawaii. And, uh, so he's going to fill in and we got the original guys and we're going to play five songs. And I'm going to just pray to baby Jesus. I can pull it off. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, mean, I tell you, I, I've listened to the Mad Wagon stuff, and your voice is still there, man. You still got the chops. Thank you, baby. Thank you, man. Yeah. But, I, appreci- I, mean, I appreciate it because, you know, you're getting old now, getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all are. I know that feeling. Yeah. Oof, man. And I think about Hawaii. I mean, I think about Hawaii all the time. But, I mean, talking about metal-wise back in the 80s, I mean, not a lot of bands that were known or came out of the area. I mean, we had Sacred Right on the show a few weeks ago. You know, there was Rat Attack, right. uh, Solace, right. Optimus Fury. You guys, uh, Marty Friedman was all over with Hawaii, Aloha, and Vixen. But, I mean, yeah. was it enough of vibrance? I know you went to L.A., and I think a lot of bands tried to do that because they felt that was where the scene was and, you know, they could make, have a bigger presence. But was Hawaii, you know, uh, busy enough, active enough for any band to keep going if they just stood there? No, actually, you know, well, the thing about Hawaii is, I mean, we had a great scene. There was a couple of really good clubs there. Um, uh, Aaron's Rod and Sacred Rite at that at that one moment in time were the two top metal bands in Hawaii, you know. And um, uh, we were getting the opening spots, you know, the supporting spot slots for opening, you know, for national acts. Sacred Rite opened for a bunch of national acts, you know, Ozzy and... You know, a bunch of bands, and, you know, and of course, Aaron's Rod opened for Rat and Judas Priest, and, you know, we did a lot of uh, private parties and uh, after-show parties for these bands, but, you know, the, Hawaii is Hawaii, my man, and it, you can only go so far, you know, in Hawaii, and you needed to make that leap of faith, so to speak, um, to either Los Angeles or New York or somewhere where you can you know, continue, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're into the business. At the end of the day, we're running a business here. You know, it's not just a bunch yeah. of kids playing music for a hobby. We're, we're actually trying to run our own business. We're creating a product. We want people to, you know, gravitate to us. And we, you know, we want to try to earn some income. We want to try to get the band. It's a business. And so as a business company, you need to move where the business is. And, you know, for us in Hawaii, Los Angeles was the nearest spot. That was the logical place to go. Um, and, and we made that move in 86 to move to Los Angeles. So, But, yeah, Hawaii, Hawaii is a beautiful place, and we love it. We had a great scene there, but there's only so much it'll go. It was only so much you can do there, you know. And, and you needed to make that decision what you wanted to do, you know, and we, we went for it. Sure. You know. Was it like that little fish in a big pond thing when you got there? Was it was it like what it, you expected, or did you kind of get lost? In it the was. 
Oh, in Los Angeles? Oh, my God. Yes, okay, so here, yeah. you know, coming coming from Hawaii, we were the big fish in the small pond. I mean, we were like big yeah. fish over there. And we get on, we get, the minute we land at LAX, we get off the plane, and I knew that we were in trouble when I noticed that all the baggage handlers had better hair than me. So <laughs> I was, I was like, uh-oh. I mean, all these guys were all, you could tell that they were all in rock bands. I mean, they all had the big hair, you know, the, you know, the, all the, the accessories, the tattoos. I'm thinking, oh, shit, we're in trouble now. And so here we go to L.A., you know, and, of course, every band in the country moves to Los Angeles. You know, I mean, everybody moves to L.A. I don't think there are hardly any Los Angelinos left. I mean, it's, everybody's from somewhere else. You know, and yeah. that was an eye-opening experience because it was like starting all over again, you know, in Los Angeles. I mean, you, nobody knew who we were. Nobody could give a shit. Um, you know, here we were on Roadrunner Records. You know, we had a record deal, and uh, we were, you know, a recording arts. You know, here we get to L.A. thinking, oh, yeah, we were, you know, we'll make it happen. And our producer, Rick Kiefer at the time, set up a lot of appointments for us and a lot of contacts. So we got off that plane feeling good, and by the time we got, you know, by the time we got to Hollywood, you know, we're like, we felt like, oh my God, okay, we have a lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I can only imagine, like, you know, it's like the height of the scene over there too. And '86, I mean, Illusions oh. Kill came out in '86. You guys were in LA at that time. I mean, was the album right. recorded in LA? Or was it done in Hawaii before you got there? No, it was done in Hawaii. We we signed with Sea West uh, Recording Studios a year before we got the contract. Rick Asher Kiefer was our producer. Rick Rick Kiefer produced TKO, Adam Baum, Michael Furlong. He also helped out with uh, uh, Hart, Aerosmith. I mean, this guy was a known guy. I mean, he he had his shit down, and uh, it was a it was a development deal that he had with us. We signed with him, um, and he recorded that first record. And, uh, and we we got the contract with Roadrunner, so we did it at Sea West Studios, and, and it, he had a beautiful studio out in, in Paradise. I mean, glass walls you can see out into the ocean. I mean, it was like magic out there. You know, it, wow. not every band gets gets that opportunity. It's pretty amazing. But we have the record. The record was out on Roadrunner. We had all that infrastructure set in place already when we made the move to L.A. So we were already off to the races when we got on that plane, you know. So yeah, so it it, it was it was it was a, a crazy crazy experience. Let me tell you. <laughs> I, yeah, I can only imagine. You know, you signed the Roadrunner, which was a big label in the eighties. You know, you had like Metal Blade, Megaforce, and a lot oh, yeah. of run labels who came into yeah. being at that time. And I think it was like a three yeah. record deal that you guys had, but we, the other two records just kind of never just sort of lighted. I mean, most people got them now because, you know, with tape trading and everything gets released sooner or later through somebody. But back then, those right. albums sat after the, after Illusion's Kill came out, right? Yeah, well, what happened was that we had a three record deal with Roadrunner, but the fine print was only if they liked the tunes that we were writing. Okay, they had to approve of the songs. Uh, okay. It wasn't a guaranteed thing. So what happened was after the first record was out, we had all that, you know, hype. And then we wrote that second record, you know, right after that real quick, we had a shitload of songs and uh, we played for Rick and, you know, Rick, 
Rick brought in a bunch of people and they really didn't hear anything they liked. Uh, you know, back in those days, Def Leppard was all that in a bag of chips. I mean, Def Leppard was yeah. ruling the airwaves. So every record label out there wanted their Def Leppard. Okay. So none of our, I mean, we're a classic European style, heavy metal bands, you know, and uh, it, it it was very, it was almost impossible for us to like write that Def Leppard stuff. We didn't want to do something that we were didn't feel natural doing, you know, it was weird. And Rick wanted that hit. He wanted that single and he didn't hear the single. And um, he wanted us to rewrite everything. He didn't hear anything. He wanted us to rewrite 15 more songs and come back at him. And we felt, you know, well, this is Aaron's rod. I mean, you know, uh, we're not Def Leppard. And, uh, I mean, he had us recording through the electronic drum kit, and he had all the synthesizers. And, and then, you know, we wanted to get back into the basics of metal. You know, we got two guitars, drums, bass, vocals. You know, just, you know, our, you know, our, our heroes were Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, Michael Schenker. You know, and uh, we were like, we want to we go in this direction. And we didn't see eye to eye on that. And that's when we decided to say, screw you, we're going to L.A. And basically, we left to Los Angeles, and, and, and Rick dropped us right after that. He, he figured, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't able to conform uh, to what he wanted, you know, unfortunately. He didn't see through, you know, he didn't see it, you know. We thought he did, but at the end of the day, he really just wanted that hit, you know, that Def Leppard sounding hit, and it, and that just wasn't us, you know. And we couldn't make ourselves to fake it, you know. If you hear the first record, you'll hear a couple of cover songs, you know. And that's all Rick Kiefer's idea to put those cover songs on that record. So it's funny when they tell you, like, you know, we don't hear what we're looking for. So go back and write, you know, fifteen new songs. And I mean, did they expect right. to honestly come back and write fifteen new songs, or even one new song that's in the mold of what they yeah. want and go against the grain of everything that? You know, you you stand for as far as you're. I mean, some bands do it because that's the most important thing right. is to make it. It's it's a fifty fifty shot, but you know, you stood you stood to your guns yeah. and you weren't going to change to who you were. We we could we well we couldn't do it. It was impossible for us. Brian Spalding is uh a, he is solid as a rock. Like I said earlier, he this guy he he wouldn't he, he Brian Spalding couldn't physically do it. He, there's no way that he was going to write something for someone. He is writing the way he writes. That's the way he writes, you know, and that's the way. I was hoping that Rick could take what we have and produce the songs in a way that were more commercial, radio. I, don't, I didn't mind that. But when you have a producer come up to you and say, that all your stuff is shit, I want you to rewrite all these songs. You need to come back with me with 15 more songs. We're looking at him like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it, I mean, he had some cat from Japan sitting there in the room. And he was, I think he was from Sony, Sony Records from Japan. He was in the control room with us. Um, and as we're playing, we're playing these songs for him live in the studio. So, you know, as a kind of like a listening party of all the new stuff. And him and the Japanese guy, the Japanese guy loved our shit. He was loving it, loving it. But Rick didn't, you know, Rick wasn't really, it didn't float Rick's boat. So, I mean, you know, it is what it is. 
that's the way it goes, you know. And, and so we decided, look, we're going to make a move and we're going to get out of here. And, um, you know, we're not going to sit around Hawaii. I mean, what's going on? We need to, we need to do something, right? Yeah. So we made that move. And it's too bad, though, because let me tell you something. People across Europe, Japan, they loved that first record. You know, we still get people to this day messaging us all the time. You know, when are you guys coming out with the next record? We love you guys, blah, blah, blah. I got your album in my collection, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I just, too bad that Rick couldn't step up and see that. You know, he was, I think he was uh, under the gun from the label to get that Def Leppard hit, you know. So there you go. That's yeah. the rock and roll business. <laughs> yeah, what a shame, too, because stuff gets lost in the mix. I know. But the hardball record was, you know, it was recorded back then. Was there any attempt to try to release it with another label or on your own, or was that impossible to do because of the contract with Roadrunner? Well, we were under a contract with Roadrunner, dude. For seven years, Roadrunner owned our stuff for seven years. We had to wait Damn. seven years before we could release anything. Now, as you know, I, we just recently released the first record. It's on all digital platforms. Um, you can find it on Amazon and CD Baby and everything like that. And Gerard, who's running Tin Idol Productions, um, he's going to release Hardball as well. And then we also have a live record that we did. Um, you know, and so we're going to release those two um uh, uh those two recordings soon it's going to be available for everybody and uh, you know the now you know this this new modern lovely world we live in now you can release your records at your at any given moment right so everyone will get to hear all of that stuff finally after 30 years so yeah that, that's going to be fantastic that. uh me too yeah Sandra, when did it all come yeah. to an end i guess it would have been sometime in the early 90s that you guys decided to just you know pack it in yeah. Well, what happened? Well, we got to LA, and um, we hit we hit the ground running. You know, we started playing, and we Aaron's Rod played a ton of shows in Hollywood. And let me tell you something. I would have I'm I'm never going to take away my experience in Los Angeles because that really taught us a lot of things. We taught us the business, and we became better musicians. But we played and played and played. And so finally around 89, 90, it started to fizzle out. And around, I think it was around 93, we finally called it a day. You know, uh, mind you now, the atmosphere in Hollywood had changed dramatically. Um, oh, yeah. Heavy metal, you know, you know, leather clad heavy metal guys on stage was a rarity, you know, and everything was grunge. Um, uh, everything was, you know, all the, all the kids with their flannel and shorts, shorts on stage. I mean, I, 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 I never understood shorts on stage, but for some reason that seemed to be a thing. And, um, and so that, it changed the whole dynamic in California, in Los Angeles changed. And if you walked in the room and you had big hair and tight pants, you were immediately ridiculed and made fun of you know, as being an old fart or passe, so to speak. So it was yeah. really it was really a tough time for us. I tell you something, the nineties weren't exactly my favorite uh, uh decade. So <laughs> I know how you feel about that. I, I think I think most yeah. of us in this so what does a metalhead do for the next ten years until something comes back around again? 
Yeah, I know there was a few th- there was a few bands out there that I listened to that I liked. Um, you know, but for all intents for for all intents and purposes, I was I relied on the old stuff. I'm to this day, if you looked at my, you know, my music uh, collection on my phone, it, you know, Michael Shanker, Uli Roth, uh, the Scorpions, Judas Priest. I mean, it's all the you know the classics. I still listen to them. There's some there was some stuff in the '90s I listened to, but for for metalheads, you had to be in Europe. Europe, you got to hand it to the Europeans for hanging on to the heavy metal. Those yeah, guys sure. never gave up, ever, you know. And I, in retrospect, I wish instead of moving to Los Angeles, we should have moved to Germany or Italy, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, you know. That's, that's where it's at today. You know, the whole scene is yeah, over in Europe. I'm telling you. I mean, that's a, a big place. But as a musician, what did you do in the 90s? I mean, did you kind of lay low or just? Well, in the 90s, well, I, I laid low for a little bit. And then um, I, I, I switched gears. I, I moved away from heavy metal, and I did some acoustic stuff, and I uh, recorded some acoustic stuff, and I, I, I got work as an acoustic guitarist. Uh, we're, I was in a band called Native Tongue, me and Gerard, you know, and we our drummer. We, we got together, and I moved back to Hawaii for a little bit, and we worked uh, five nights a week, six nights a week, uh, playing acoustic music, and Waikiki was a great job. Uh, we made we made a lot of money. My office space was Waikiki Beach. Uh, oh, every sunset. Oh, dude. I mean, it wasn't that bad. Come on, I, I'm not complaining. Trust me. It's like wow. <laughs> and um, and so that was you know that was great. The whole heavy metal thing was behind me. I thought. And and then what happened was that uh, maybe, I think it was uh, 2000 finally came rolling around. And uh, me and my wife uh, decided to move back to uh, the mainland, as we call it. And, she, you know, she got a great job offer in Portland, Oregon. And I felt that I was, I still, I still had enough years in me left to put together a hard rock metal band and try. Now that I, I saw, I saw I was coming back around, you know, and I thought to myself, well, listen, I got to get back over there and I got to try it again, you know? So I moved to Portland in uh, 2004 and um, I immediately started playing the scene here in Portland. And let me tell you something. I have done more musically in Portland in the last 15 years than I have done in, in, in all my years playing, even in Hollywood. I mean, the band that I, Mad Wagon, and even the band before that, Earth to Ashes, uh, I supported so many bands. I mean, we opened up for, you know, the Primal Fear and Fate's Warning and Michael Schenker and Doro Pesh. I mean, we were like the go-to band to call to support these guys. And to me, it's like, wow, really? So I landed in the right spot for that, to get back into it. And now, here we got this thing going on with, you know, everyone's got big hair now, and we got all these bands coming out. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, it's a resurgence, and uh, and I'm at the right place at the right time. It's all timing, Mike. I tell you, it, sure. it doesn't matter how good you are. Yeah, it doesn't matter how good you are. I've seen, you know, I've seen everything. You can be the best guy in the room, but if your timing sucks, it ain't gonna work. You know, it's all about timing. So you sound like my wife. Yeah, when I go to bed every night. It's all about timing. She keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! 
It's all about uh, timing. Honey, it's timing. You, you should have been here five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely Classic. true. But, but Medweg, I've been listening to the songs, and I'm like, you know, a three-piece band, which means everybody's really got to pull their own weight. I mean, you you know, you do double duty on vocals and, and bass on top of that, but what right. a solid rock band. And, you know, I think one thing lacking in music today is good hard rock. There's not a lot out there. Right yes. Now. Not good rock. Not good. No. And you guys really got that market covered. Yeah, we do. We, I mean, the three guys we got going. I mean, you know, Rodney Hardison on guitar, Rich Morris on on drums, and I'm I'm playing bass. I mean, the bass was my first instrument before I became a frontman. You know, all my bands growing up when I was a teenager, I was a bass player, and um, so I I picked up the bass when I moved back to port when I moved to Portland, and um, and I've been playing bass and being the front guy. I mean, my hero and my my all time hero is Gene Simmons, Phil Knott. You know, those guys were my hero. They were frontmen bass players, you know, and, uh, and and that's where I get my influence from. But, yeah, it's a great band. These guys are a joy to work with, um, amazing, talented guys, and uh, we, we just managed to, you know, get in there. Our first, our very first show playing out was opening up, supporting L.A. Guns um, a couple of years ago, you know, and... Um, and that was a great start for us, you know. I mean, we and we and we've been hit. We've been hitting. We did a show with Mark Slaughter recently, where we backed him up. We were his support band. Um, we opened up for Anvil twice, and uh, right now we're talking about doing another show with Mark Slaughter and Ron Keel. Um, so from Keel, Keel, you know, he's got his new album out, you know, and, uh, Ron Keel's doing great. He's got a great band behind him. So we're going to be doing some shows with those guys and we're planning a West coast tour soon. So, I mean, things are looking really good right now for Madwagon, and we're very happy about that. That's Didn't Mark play one of the songs, uh, one of your songs? Mark Slaughter is a dear friend of Rodney Hardison's. Um, you know, they, they, they go back. It, to make a long story short, I'll give you the breakdown. You remember Tim Kelly from Slaughter? Tim Kelly was a guitar player yep. in Slaughter back in the day. He had all the hits and all that jazz. Well, he passed away. He got into a car wreck, and he passed away. And what happened was that his family just sold all of his gear willy-nilly. They didn't care. They got rid of all of his shit. Somehow... Rodney Hardison gets a hold of Tim Kelly's Purple Grape guitar, his famous guitar that you see him in all the videos and whatnot. And Rod Hardison had the guitar for a while. Slaughter came into town one year. uh, Rodney reached out to Mark and said, hey, I have Tim's guitar, blah, blah, blah. And then Slaughter goes, listen, come to the show, come backstage. Uh, let's meet. I want to see the guitar. Bring the guitar with you. Okay? He does. They go to the show. He shows them the guitar. Everybody starts crying. It's kind of an emotional thing. Um, And Rodney, being the wonderful human being that he is, just decides to give Mark the guitar back. It belongs to you. It belongs to Slaughter. You can have the... You take the guitar. It's yours. And uh, ever since then... Those two are best of buddies. Uh, they're great friends. And so what happened was when we were recording the record with Tom Van Riper of Lost Studios, 
you know, of course, Rodney was talking to Mark back and forth, back and forth, and Mark's like, hey, why don't you let me play some guitar on one of your tracks? And Rodney's like, well, shit, yeah, of course. And it just so happened he puts a guitar on Tramp Stamp, um, our track Tramp Stamp. So yeah, there he is. And and a lot of people don't realize what an amazing guitar player Mark Slaughter is. I mean, uh, everyone knows of him as a singer. But this cat can play guitar like a mofo. I mean, this, he's, a, he's an amazing guitarist. So he laid he laid a, a solo down on Tramp Stamp. That's all him. And uh, and yeah, it's great. It's just it was an honor to have him on the record. Really, you know, great guy. That's a great song. I'm gonna play it when we're done talking in a little bit. But what are the plans now for Medwagon? I mean, record touring, anything else coming up? Oh yeah, we got a bunch of stuff planned. Right now we're, um, you know, we are putting together a, a string of dates. We got some shows in August. Uh, we're gonna be playing some dates in Seattle. Uh, our, our, we got some good friends. They're called the Adarna. They're out of Seattle. They're right now on the road with Hinder uh, and uh, American Sin. They've been on a road. They've been on the road for a few weeks now. When they get back off the road, we're going to do some shows with them. Um, and then right, I tell you, I'll be honest with you. We, Rodney is one of those guys that can't stop writing songs. So we already have the second record. Uh, you know, we already have some songs for the second record. We're already talking about you know, going in the studio in the fall and recording the second follow-up already. Uh, we plan on doing some shows in Las Vegas and in California soon. So, you know, that's all, you know, you know how that goes, you know, back and forth, back and forth, trying to get all the logistics straight and, you know, everybody's, you know, all the paperwork together. But we got that going for us. Yeah, we're going to be pretty busy uh, for a while, you know. Um, uh, we're looking forward to playing California and Vegas and, and on top of it all, Mark wants to do another show with us. So we're trying to get some dates out of him. And uh, we'll be putting together a few shows with Mark Slaughter again in, in the very near future. Man, that's so, going to be great. That's, I mean, Angela, you, yeah, you think about have. the last 40 years of, of forty years of music, you know, starting out with Adam's Rod, knowing that metal was, you know, ruling the world back then, and you can make it as big as you possibly can if the cards are in your favor right. to now. Where it's a whole different business model, but it sounds like now you're having more fun now and enjoying more of what you're doing now than you were back then. I'm yeah. not saying anything bad about back then. I'm saying like you really seem to be loving the music scene right now. Yeah. The the to be honest with you, the only thing that I miss about those old days is my waistline. <laughs> <laughs> my 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 own waistline. I, I I look at I I still got the hair luckily, but I look at the I'm like looking at my old pictures going, damn. I mean, I I was a splitting image for Gino Vanelli. I tell you, people would say, I tell you, I could have been Gino Vanelli's doppelganger. I mean, I'm like, damn, I was cute. What the hell happened? (laughs) No, but, you know, listen, you get to a certain age, Mike, where, you know, you're mature, you you, you know what you're doing, you're having fun. And the thing, here's the thing, um, synergy. When you're with a, when when you're working with guys that you genuinely love to be hanging around with. I mean, you know, Rodney and Rich are two great guys. I love those guys to death. It's 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 a joke a minute. It's a practical joke a minute. We're laughing all the time. We're all on the same page. You know, we all want the same thing. It's kind of effortless, you know. And you know, we have we're really having a good time. And um, we know what we're doing. Uh, there's no dissension. There's no, 
drama or weirdness. You know, you know, we're not alcoholics or junkies. You know, we're not doing piles of cocaine. Uh, you know, we're not dating strippers. Although that was pretty fun back in the '80s. But you know what I'm saying. And, Absolutely. You know, you're you're having fun now, and and we're having a blast, and we're lucky enough to be playing music that people really want to hear. You know, there are so many young people out there that dream of the 80s and, you know, God, I wish I was there. And, oh, my God, you guys are so lucky. And, you know, these 30-year-olds who have, you know, weren't around back in the 80s, right? They want to relive those days. They want to get out there and listen to that music. And we're, here we are playing our own stuff, and and they're loving it. And it's like, wow, it's a great response out of them. So we're, we are really having a great time here. So, and we want to keep we want to keep it going as long as we can because you know we're getting old now. So, just keep going, keep moving like a shark. You know, you don't want to stop moving or you sink to the bottom. So, that that's so true, Angela. I mean, I could talk yeah. to you forever, man. I wish we could. But I got another guest coming on in five minutes, and I want to play, you know, some Medwagon. But listen, when the Amazon record comes out, the next Medwagon comes out, you come on the show. I'm not gonna have any other guest on here. We could talk for the whole two hours. And go over oh, I'd over. love to, Mike. I would love to, Mike. We're, we're, I'll, 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 you know what? The minute that those tracks are done, I'll send them to you. I, I'm a Rich Morris, my guy. I think he sent you guys our our Mad Wagon EPK, and we'll send you a record yeah. and stuff. And, and and you know, thanks for the support. We really appreciate it. Angela, I've been a fan since day one. I'll keep being a fan till you're not doing it anymore, man. I can't thank you enough for being on tonight's show. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking thank again. Thank you, Mike. You take care of New York City it, for me, man. I will. You take care of the West Coast. Enjoy Portland. All right. Ciao, baby. Take care. Thank you. Take care, buddy. You got it, buddy. Have a good night. All right. Let's play some Mad Wagon right now. Then if we got time, we'll do a little more Aaron's Ride before we get to Mark. Oh, uh-huh. 
Mad Wagon with Tramp Stamp, the song we were just talking about. Let's get our next guest, Mark on the line. Hang with me when I dial him up. He just called in, too, and the funny thing is that him and Angelo have almost identical phone numbers, and I thought I had Angelo still on the line, so I think I disconnected him, but we'll get Mark on there right now. All right, let's try that one more time here. I think I left a, a space in the number. All right, I think that's going through. Okay, give Mark one second, and we'll get this interview going. The call you are attempting to place is not allowed from this line. Please dial 611 for customer service or dial 1-800-331-0500 from a landline phone. Desde esta línea no se permite hacer esta llamada. Favor de marcar 611 para comunicar. Hmm, that doesn't sound good, huh? Let's <laughs> try that one more time. Hey, it's Mark. Mark, how are you? This is Mike. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm sorry. Your number and our last guest number is almost identical except for two digits. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we both you... live in Portland. Isn't that weird? That's, you know, it's funny because I was like, what? I, I still got him on the line. <laughs> and then I realized it was yeah. you when you sent me the message. <laughs> so I, I apologize about that. No problem. All right, he's still on the other line. We're gonna, he's going to hang up in a second, then we'll get this interview going. But listen, I'm a big Wisdom fan, man, and I'm so happy that, you know, Heaven and Hell Records is, you know, given through the looking glass a re-release. This is going to be fantastic. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm excited, but I love it. I got the CD in the mail from him, and I'm just so happy. They did a great job. They always do. And, and I tell yeah, you, they I, do. I go back to 1987, and I remember when that record came out, I mean, you guys, I mean, back then, you were you out of Minnesota, if I remember. Yep, that's where we were from, Minnesota. Yeah, and I mean, what a solid record. I've hoped for so much more, and then, and hear from you guys anymore. So maybe we'll go back to the beginning and find out how everything came about and how it all started. Sure, anything. I'm ready for anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did the whole thing come about? Like, in what year? Because a lot of people don't really have a lot of info on the band. Well, it started... That's because it's very complicated. <laughs> That's why the booklet he put out, Jeremy put out on the re-release of the CD, it really, yeah. it's involved because there's so much history of the band because there's so many um, reformations and problems that went on. And, uh, oh, my God. So it started way, it's, actually the idea came to me in my first band, which was the Russ Erickson band. That's uh, so actually my second band, but anyways, and I had the idea for Wisdom way back when I was in that band, so I started, I formed it right after that band broke up, so that probably was back in 79, 1980, but then uh, that did, the first formation of it didn't last very long, so then I moved on to the next formation, which was like about a year later. I would say, it would, I would say probably 1980 is when it started. 
Wow. I mean, you think about it, almost 40 years ago that this whole thing, oh my God. you know, kind of got going. And, you know, uh, was it diff- I mean, what was the difficult part about putting it together? Was it finding, you know, just the right guys to play or people that had the same vision as you or wanted to go in the same direction? Or is that still like a big challenge with any band today? Yeah, definitely. In fact, that's why people always say, "What well, your band was so great. Why didn't what? Why didn't you guys make it? Why didn't you stay together?" Because that's the hardest thing to do. People don't realize that uh, band members can be the death of a band because everybody has their own opinion, their own philosophy, and you got to get along like a family. And it's really tough to do. And uh, well, we were see the problem is I was I'm a songwriter first and a singer songwriter, so I was. I just have to write music, and so that's basically why I started playing a band, just because nobody would do my music. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> and uh, Wisdom was all about songwriting. We we wrote a lot of songs. That's the, that's what's so nice about him re-releasing this album is because um, we've got a, like four, three to four other albums that were never released with the material. Wow. I know. We wrote a lot of songs in Wisdom, a lot. I mean, I'd say probably about 100 songs, easy. Or more. That's incredible. It's, it's like eighty, eighty-one now. I guess when you finally got like a stable lineup together, and it was about a good six years before the record first sort of light of day. Yeah, it was. Yeah, we we, we put out a um, a lot of cassette demos and stuff, and then we put out a seven-inch vinyl um, for when we were trying to get into this label at Warner Brothers at one time, and. Uh, then we had the person that was making the producing it for us and putting out the seven inch took our money and spent it on his heroin. I guess he was a heroin addict that went straight and then he went off the way, decided to go off the wagon when he was working with us. He took our money and spent it on heroin. So that got that seven inch got delayed for a year while I went and to back to the studio and, and negotiated with them that they have to front the money because their guy producer working for them <laughs> shot up our money. <laughs> oh man! Oh my you God! About a story. But, oh, uh, we've got. That's the problem. With, that's probably the problem with wisdom is that we've got so many um, crash and burn stories. It's unbelievable how many things happen to us. Is oh my God! And, and people don't realize how that can drag a band down after a while. No matter how great you are, no matter how stable the lineup may be, there's a lot of outside forces in the music business that could tear a band apart and just you know make it throw in a towel. And that's so true because I've worked with so many extremely talented musicians that never made it, never got their dream come true, and a lot of them you know, couldn't handle it and end up doing some crazy shit and losing it. But, and I don't blame them, you know, because the music business is cutthroat. People don't realize it's very cutthroat. There's some really great players and musicians out there. That's what I like about what, what Jeremy's doing at Heaven and Hell Records is because they're putting out a lot of bands that didn't, get the chance maybe they had an album out but it didn't get the you know the listen it deserved there's so many great artists out there that need to be brought back to light true i I couldn't agree more well you know you think about it you know like the single came out they're not afraid to be strange and came out in 85 the album came out two years later that was a real big time you know in the world of hard rock and heavy metal i mean everybody was getting signed you know, genres were coming and, you know, were coming and going like crazy. I mean, was it difficult to stand out, you know, in the crowd? You know, it just seemed like, you know, with the Internet today, it's impossible to find some bands because there's just so many. But back then, 
you know, there were also a lot of bands just that had to promote themselves in a different way, but it was a difficult, you know, getting your voice heard with such a massive amount of bands out there all trying to get signed? Oh, yeah, it was extremely difficult. And what, what I think what hurt us in retrospect, which I didn't realize, you know, I kind of realized then, is that we were a very eclectic band, is that I was a huge Led Zeppelin fanatic and Deep Purple fanatic, and I, and so I liked all the you know, if you listen to Zeppelin or Deep Purple, you hear every shade of, of rock, hard rock, you know? And then I also was a huge Dio fan, and then a Queensryche fan. <laughs> so I, my music palette was so varied that, uh, and I also listened to mellow groups like Cat Stevens and stuff, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I just, and the problem is I put all those styles into our into wisdom, and therefore it made it really hard for record labels to markets. So when I brought our stuff to a label or something, they usually would say something like, I don't know how we were gonna how would we market to you guys, you know. This music is everywhere. Which to me is a plus because that's the kind of bands I like. They like bands that went everywhere. Like, you know, for example, Zeppelin three, the critics hated it because it had so much folk on it, along with like the immigrant song, you know, it had other stuff on it. But that's the part where I loved it. I love to see the other sides of these bands. I love to see them go, you know, super heavy metal hard and then I like to see the softer side or the the stranger side of the music too. Sure. No, I, I completely understand that. I, I think through the looking glass there's a really nice variety of stuff on there that takes you in all different directions. Like you were saying, I guess the label doesn't know what to do with it and that kind of hurts the band. So I mean, do you change your style of writing then to accommodate the label to give them what they want and then hope that you you know, put out enough records with them where they say, okay, now, like you said, like Zeppelin Three, you know, they were at that point where they could experiment a little bit more because they had that, that backing. Or do you kind of have yep. to just go with what you got and put out what you want? Yeah, and exactly. And we probably should have just wrote one style and stuck with it. Unfortunately, as a songwriter, I can't write just one style. I mean, I've, I write, I mean, I write so many different styles. The reason why you got heavy metal and hard rock in there because that's in my blood. You know, I grew up listening, loving, you know, hard rock and and heavy bands like, you know, Zeppelin, Aerosmith, Deep Purple and stuff and and Dio and Queensryche. So, you know, it just was in my blood. So I couldn't stop writing that. But I like a lot of other stuff, too. So I, I when I write songs, I don't say, oh, I, well, actually, I do sometimes say, let's write a hard, heavy metal song. But, you, yeah, you're right. I should have probably just stuck to writing one style or the other. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I did. Hey, you know what? I, I probably that, that, shot myself that. in the foot doing that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? But everything old is new again these days. Like you said, you you do have like three or four albums worth of material. I mean, was there any of chance stuff. of releasing them back then, or was it just it was the look glass it and the band was kind of over and done with at that point in time? Well, the reason why those other ones didn't get released was because of all the crash and burns that the band went through when a, when when something bad happened when a label would turn us down or something bad would happen members would quit the band new members came in and we thought and they wanted to be part of the new mu music they wanted to write new stuff they didn't want to be just hired guns playing you know if you if you're playing with a band and you're not paying a, a lot of money because we're starving artists you got to make them feel part of the band you if you got a lot of money you can just hire hire guns and say okay we want you to play these songs and this is the way you're going to play them but we wanted them to be part of the band, and, and so they partaked in the songwriting. So we would say, okay, let's scratch these songs and put them on the shelf and start some new songs and write some new stuff. Yeah. You know. 
Well, you did well, mention Bridges, one man, Here's an example. Bridges of Ma- sorry, Bridges of Magic no, yeah. is an example where we did carry that song. Bridges of Magic. If you listen, it's a very heavy song, and everybody loved it every time we played it at a show. So we kept that going no matter what. It was going to be on an album, first album, then second album that got scratched, and then finally it made it on to Through the Looking Glass. Yeah, Bridges of Magic is a great song. One of my favorites on the album. I mean, you know, especially the lyrics. I, I love the words to that song. Uh, but what I was getting to before is you were talking about Warner Brothers. Was there interest from that label? Because you, you, if I remember, you put out through the looking glass on your own. Was there interest from Warner Brothers at that time or when the single came out? Yeah, they were going to, they were interested in signing us. They wanted us to go on tour with a band called Lick, which was going to be, a, was going to be like a in the vein of Kiss, you know? I don't yeah. know what happened to him, because I looked up, and I can't find nothing on the internet. But at the time, Warner Brothers was said they were going to sign him, and they were going to put us on tour with them to see how we would do. But that's when the fiasco happened with the with – the, uh, they wanted us to come up with all the promo, and they wanted us to put the 7-inch out on our own and get, get them a big packet of promo. Well, our money got taken by that guy who was doing the heroin. I told you about the producer. Yeah. He took our yeah. money. In. And so – by the time we got that out, we it was too late. We missed out on the deal and uh, blew that. So I don't know if anything went that came with that. But uh, we that's just one of the many, many times that's hap- that happened. I know. Here's the deal. I'm a songwriter, singer, or you know, band member. I'm not a businessman, and th- and maybe that's what I needed. I should have had probably a manager from the start handling stuff. All I wanted to do was perform and write songs. That's what and sing. That's what I wanted to do. That seems to be a problem with a lot of bands because, you know, they get into it because, yeah. you know, the music, but then they realize there's a whole business involved in it. And, you know, yeah. it can be really daunting or time-consuming, and it's not stuff you're familiar with either at that point at this stage. And it can really throw you for a loop, but then you worry about getting management in there who's going to either take care of you or not take care of you. It's not as easy as people <laughs> want it to be or it sounds. No, and and the thing I would tell – I do now I tell the people all the time when they ask me what they should, they should do to make it, I say, get yourself – a good promotion company, get save up money and pay for it. It's going to be worth it. Get a promotional company and a management company. This DIY stuff, it's it's a it's a joke because here's the, the problem: is that there's so many bands saturating the area out there that these uh, labels and these clubs and stuff can't. Uh, I'm not saying it can't work. There's always some um, success story of a DIY DIY you know person, DIY guy who does it themselves, and there's always success stories. But let's put it this way. Musicians and artists should should strive to write, be good writers, be good performers, do the best they can, be be in the art. They shouldn't have to be in this whole bullshit of the business end of it. It's it's just it takes away from your creativity. I'm telling you, every time I got and tried to become a manager or be the business guy in the band, I lost my creativity. It would burn me out. Create, you know, I feel like I had a mental block when it came to writing. Maybe I just you was think never it's better meant to today? be in that part. Well, it's is horrible it better today, today. For you as a musician? Oh yeah, I, th- I think we're like you know the internet being able to release things on your own, and you don't have to be so business involved today. I thought it would have been better, but it, you feel it's even more difficult today. Yeah, I think it's more like I say it's a, it's a, it's too much oversaturated. You know, it's weird that me and the and the guy earlier from the from uh, the guy you were interviewing earlier, really cool guy. Uh, he's from Portland, Oregon too, and we're, so we're both from Portland, and it's. Everybody came down from Seattle. It's so saturated here. You know, I thought this was going to be a great musical town. So he's doing great with it, but it's not doing good for me because 
I can throw a rock and hit a musician. So labels, there is actually no labels in Portland anymore. There's no record labels in Portland. There's no real legit uh, managers here either. They all moved to Seattle or L.A. Is it oversaturated as far as the live scene goes too? Like as far as you know, you know the amount of bands that are trying to play out. It's terrible. It's a, it's pay to play here. You're not as bad as L.A., but you have to play for the door. You have to sell tickets. If you don't sell tickets, you just pay for whoever shows up at the door, and it's uh, um, and then they take their cut, and you get a tiny little bit of money. They don't do any promoting the bars, nothing. You have to do it all, and. Uh, yeah, it's probably normal for people in L.A., but we don't expect that outside yeah. of that, you know? Well, it's like I, that I, here, I, too, I, in New York, most clubs. I feel bad for bands today. I think that I don't want to make people feel sad about If you're an artist and writing stuff, keep writing and perform and do your thing because that's the most important thing is the art because um, that's what it's all about. I write. I still write... I write a song almost per day still. I'm a songwriting machine because that's what gives me therapy. And if you're a true musician and songwriter, you have to write no matter what. That's just what you do. So I don't want to discourage people from doing that. I'm just saying it's really it's really bad for musicians today. You look at the market right now. There's hardly any famous bands like there were back in the day, like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and those kind of bands. Today, there's hardly any of them at that stature right now. The only bands that are at that way are the ones that created a brand from 20 years ago. But if you didn't create a brand, a brand name back then, you're really hurting now. I mean, can you name personally name some bands right now that are just as famous as, as Led Zeppelin coming out today brand new? No, there's none. And, and the ones that do garner some attention, like uh, Greta Van Fleet and the rest of them, they kind of fade away after a couple of years. I don't think there's any sustainability anymore for young no, bands to become the next Led Zeppelin or ACDC or any of those, Aerosmith, any of those bands. I don't think there's any platform out there for them. And it's kind of sad because, you know, where are we going to be when, listen, we're all getting older. Some of these guys are in their 70s today. I mean, you know, they're yeah. not going to be around doing this forever. What happens to, like, you know, good rock and roll? Yeah, and you're exactly right. And I think it kind of kind of reflects our political Right now, our government is more corrupt than it's ever been in history. And I don't know if you noticed in my lyrics, I sneak in a lot of political stuff along with my occult stuff. Because you know, when I back in wisdom, I was highly into the occult, and so I read, I read and studied many occult books. But I also have always been a person who's like a rebel. I like to rebel against, you know, the status quo. Right, and so I yeah. notice I've been noticing every year things getting worse and worse, not better. They just hide it from us, so it's hidden, it's slick, it's underneath, but it's it's worse than it's ever been. We're so much, you know, like the NSA is watching every move we make. We're so much 1984. 1984s came true, and if I was to yeah, just get 30 up, years get, later, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 30 yeah. years later, it's finally come true. It's here. It's here. We just don't realize it. I realize it. Maybe you realize it, but. A lot of people out there, they're oblivious to it. They're staring at their little iPhones, happy in their little world that someone's created for them, and they're not realizing that their rights have been taken away. They're keeping us pacified. They stuck a pacifier in our mouth and hoping that we're going to be happy with whatever they give us. No, that's, that's so true. I, I, I think sometimes today, because you know, because of the Internet, social media, and all these sites, I mean – 
you know, you hear about it more often now, but it was just as bad back then too. So now you have more access to seeing and hearing it on a on a daily basis. It's not like a minute by minute basis. But a lot of this stuff has been around for a long time. We were just blind to it because we didn't have direct access to it every day. You're exactly right. The corruption has been there ever since I can remember. It's but it's just that it's now getting out because everybody can get access to the internet. But it's, I think it's actually reached a reached a peak now. I think it's worse. Not a whole lot worse, but it's worse now than it was back then. It's growing. It hasn't subsided, and that's why a show like your show is so important, because you're letting the people get on there who aren't famous or super famous, and uh, that's so important because that's the future. There's never going to be people like Led Zeppelin anymore. I mean, I hope it. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think there's going to be. Um, Famous bands like Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Dio, and Queensryche uh, anymore now in the future, but so so they're going to need people. They're going to need formats like your radio station. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. We we do what we can to keep it going. Uh, and I'm not mad at you know through the looking glass of seeing the light of day again. Do you think there's any chance that there might be a, a new version or reformation of Wisdom in any way, or maybe you getting out there and performing these songs live, or even more important, getting all those other songs, you know, released now, you know? Oh yeah, I would love to. I would love to go out and do a reunion show. That just got to get together. Like about, uh, I don't know, I think it was five years ago. I got a promoter from over in Europe contact me because there's someone's bootlegging our wisdom thing over there. And I don't know how the internet or hard copies. I'm not sure, but he said it was selling like crazy. And I said, first thing I ever heard of it, I ain't got a penny from it, you know. So I said, he <laughs> yeah. said offered a he offered a tour, but he was only going to pay tickets. For our flying tickets for yeah. the band members to fly over there, no one could afford to just fly over there. I mean, we could fly afford to fly over because the tickets we paid for, but we couldn't afford to do the show uh, just off of whatever. It'd just be cut of the door. We didn't have any guaranteed money, and we just couldn't do it, you know. But you know, if it was just like a a few uh, shows here or there, yeah, I'm totally up for it. I mean, and if it was a tour that had some all right money, it doesn't have to be that great. I'm not a greedy person. You know, but it has to be enough so the band members that I can get together would actually agree to do it. Because a lot of the guys in Wisdom now are quite old. <laughs> they're not gonna, they're not gonna want to go out on the road. No way. In fact, two of them are computer people, so they make really good money doing computer programming and stuff. So I don't think they would ever yeah. want to go. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of bands, like you're talking about, they get back together and they do one-off shows. You know, here and there when it comes in and it's worth their time and. You know, nobody wants to go out and play to lose money, even though nobody's going to get rich. But they just want to know that, you know, everything's taken care of. So maybe that is a possibility. But more, I would love to hear all these unreleased songs that you, you know, weren't able to get out there. And I'm hoping that you can get them, you know, out there for people to hear. Yeah, me and Jeremy are talking about that. Um, and because it's just, it's, it makes you kind of excited because we wrote some really great stuff in Wisdom that never got out there. I mean, some really, there was a lot of, Stuff that was on borders on prog music. Uh, people who don't know what prog is is progressive rock, progressive metal yeah. and stuff. We did because uh, we, you know we experimented. You know there were some your poppy songs too because we were trying to get signed, so we always kept trying to write a hit because that was what we figured. If we get in the door, then maybe we can do what we want. So we what if someone so someone from the industry said, "Can you write something more catchy?" Sure, I'll, I write catchy stuff all the time. I'm a songwriter. Yeah, you got to kind of get what they want to get it. Yeah, no, yeah, I, exactly. A lot of, so I would... 
Skid Row went out with the first record that was very commercial, you know, because that's what they needed to do to get signed. They became humongous. By the time the second record came out, they had a little bit more control, and they went a different direction than what they wanted to do originally, you know. So sometimes you got to, you know, you got to play the game to get, the, you know, to get the band out there and and make it happen. Yeah, I had no problem doing that. I, I, the problem is that I was just not a person, a business type person that could. I tried. I tried. I would manage the band a lot. I would try to. Um, do the business side of it. We would every time we did get somebody to do the business side of it, they would screw us over. They would just want to put us out on the road and to tour or something, play, and they didn't have they had no desire to, uh, to get our music signed to a label. And that's what it was all about for me. You know, that's what I wanted. Yeah, sure. Well, when, when we Wisdom finally, I didn't. Sorry. Yeah, you ahead. kept writing. You told me. Yeah, no, no. You you can't continue, please. Yeah, I never stopped writing. The thing is, I didn't go, okay, well, we're not going to sign. I'm not going to write songs until I have a deal and stuff like that. I I would write, I write continually, nonstop. We and uh, so the other band members, you know, we we were writing machines. We because we loved playing the music. We loved it. We we it was in our blood. It was everything that we desired in life. We weren't. We, wisdom was not about going out and getting laid and getting girls. Uh, a lot of bands were, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, because a lot of bands did. I, I played in other bands that just, that's what they were about. But Wisdom wasn't about that. Wisdom was about a philosophy, a message, and the music, and everybody in the band. We were we were a lot like Rush, you know, where we didn't, we weren't trying to, Rush, you know, if you ever read about stories behind the backstory of Rush, they didn't, they weren't after going out there trying to find a uh, tale or whatever. You know. Yeah. It was the music. It's always been the music with us and, and writing and the passion of that. That came first no matter what. No matter any, from That was before anything else. And that's why I look when, back when with the, uh, with members of Wisdom, and I look back with, you know, with uh, such great feelings for them. I don't have hard feelings for members of Wisdom because they they were all. It was all about the passion that we felt when we played. It was. It was I still have that in my heart. It's great. Well, you know, maybe one day it can come around again. It would be great to see that. But when the band did break up, I mean, was it a relief that it was over, or was it just heartbreaking to have to put it away? Well, which time did it break? It broke up probably six times. When it <laughs> when the final broke, yeah, when the final breakup happened, it didn't hit me that bad. And the reason why is because we immediately had formed another band off of that. Wisdom actually became Wild Child. We're actually we performed some wisdom songs in Wild Child for a while till we wrote enough of our own music. So since it happened, kind of a transition. I didn't really notice the breakup because you know it switched over to Wild Child. And we went right on tour right right away. So we went right out on tour when it became Wild Child, and therefore I couldn't miss Wisdom. It happened. The missing of Wisdom happened years later when there was a break in the in the in the time pattern when I had time to reflect and then I go, Oh man, I missed that band <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize we were running the wild child that quickly. Yeah, so you had other things to focus on. You weren't really thinking about, you know, what it was. Immediately. In fact it was the members of wisdom that were in formed Wild Child with. And then of course we changed some members and were writing uh in Wild Child. But when I first switched over it was that exact members that were in Wisdom at that time were in Wild Child. Were you looking to take Wild Child in a different direction than Wisdom musically? Yeah, we were trying to write just 
we were kind of writing hair metal because that was what's really big at the time. We were trying to get signed. Yeah. And so that we were concentrating on doing that only, just writing what was in at the time. I was trying to get away from my eclectic writing style that caused Wizard never get signed. And that, and and then so Wild Child, we had direct direction. Let's write what's in at the time. You know what the hair metal bands are doing. Let's write that music and concentrate on just doing that. That's what we were trying to do. Um, I don't know if we did. I probably broke the rule and started writing eclectic shit because that's what I do. But uh, I don't want to. It's probably probably my fault that this never happened because if I look back in the, you know, I want to mention one thing about Dave Sanborn, the first guitar player. He's the main guitar player of uh, Wisdom. He just he wrote great great music. Dave wrote great music. And if there was any um, twist in the music, it was probably me, because uh, like I say, I such eclectic style that I would put all these little nuances and weird. Anything weird you're hearing in this Wisdom CD is me. You know, I wrote a lot of, I had a lot of strange ideas that would go through my head. Music and Music and melodies and words, mainly the melodies and words are all me. And that's and that's where uh, it came from is my strong belief in the occult at the time. I was in spiritual ideas too, you know. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. And I'm glad that you guys kept putting out that music. And I'm hoping that we get you know more music by you guys, whether it's brand new or re-releases of the stuff that never saw the light of day. But Mark, I only got about ten minutes left in the show, and I want to play a couple of wisdom songs to close things out. But I can't thank you enough for being here tonight to talk to me. I had a great time. Been a fan of Wisdom since that record came out. I'm looking forward to hopefully you and Jeremy getting together and re-releasing all that old stuff. It would be great to hear what you had going on in your mind back then. Jeremy's a great guy, and uh, I would love to work with him on releasing these of the song. I mean, I like this guy's like a brother to me now. I just really get along great with him. Yeah, yeah he's Still a class actor. He wants a great label. Yeah, and keep doing what you're doing because... Your very your your radio station is a very important thing for the future of this music. Uh, Mark, I can't thank you enough for saying that, and I do appreciate, it, man. Thank you for all the great music, and hopefully we're going to get a lot more from you. You have a great. I keep writing. I'm, I'm still writing. I'm in a right now. That's I'm in it. a psychedelic band right now uh, called Organic Acid, and we're still writing music. That's the most important thing. Keep experimenting, yeah. my friend. Yeah. Thanks. You have a great day. Take care, buddy. You too. Thank you. Bye. All right. Mark Nessia from Wisdom. Let's play two songs back-to-back, and then we're going to wrap it up here tonight. We talked about this before, Bridges of Magic. Probably one of my favorite songs by the band.
thank our guests, Mark Nestor from Wisdom and Angela Bree from Aaron's Rod and Ned Wagon. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. I believe we have members of Warhead and Babylon AD on the show. I have to confirm that, but we'll wrap it up here tonight with a little rock artist with Make My Night. Have a great week, everybody. I'll see you next Sunday. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.